This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month, they deliver them to your doorstep. This episode is also sponsored by our patrons, Jessica DeMarco Jacobson, Laura Chauvin, Mandy Booty, Chantel Oliver, Ellen Gross, Jill Harrigan, Jamie Lang, Mari B. Hedgecoth, Monique Harris-Pexato, and James Henderson. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. Today, I am taking you 130 years back in time. Okay. To the east coast of the United States. So like 1890s, is that where we're at on the east coast? 1890s through the early parts of the 20th century. Cool. In New York City. Oh. But we're starting in Pennsylvania. Okay. This is a time period that historian Doris Kearns Goodwin described as the United States molting. It was such a significant change that it is almost like it took off its skin and started over. That's cool. So just a short list of a few of the things that have changed at this point in the United States. The frontier is gone. Mm. The U.S. is settled from coast to coast. There is extremely entrenched political corruption, and that corruption is starting to spark lots of grassroots protest Mm -hmm. of... Union strikes. Union strikes, serious civil upheaval. Politics is incredibly polarized between liberal and conservative views. There's a lot of pushback against the Victorian values that have really run most of the 19th century Mm -hmm. in the United States. Massive income inequality on a scale that had never been seen before in the (laughs) United States. Much of this sounds familiar. Oh, this is such an unfamiliar world that we're thinking about here. (laughs) Serious crises in race relations. You know, the failures of Reconstruction are becoming really apparent. Established gender roles are being really strongly questioned. Yeah. The nation is completely mesmerized by new communications technologies. <laughs> These shocking new innovations that are going to change the world, like the telephone and the telegraph. Yeah. Electricity. Electricity. Lots of concern around immigration and integration of immigrants into mm. American society. I think it's actually one of the most interesting time periods in American history. If I had to go back in time and live in any period in American history, that's where I would Mm. live. Like the turn of the 20th century must have been an exciting time to be alive just because everything was changing so much and so many like truly new discoveries were being made that. Yeah, it was it must have been wild. Yeah. 
you never know what news you're going to wake up to and how things are going to be different. But this is really a time when there is a growing concern among some parts of society that traditional values are being abandoned. Oh, yeah. That America is losing its moral center. Mm-hmm. And while a lot of people feel like you, that this is a really exciting time, there's also a lot of people who are really unhappy yeah. about the things that are changing in this country. I mean, I know none of us can imagine what that would be like to live in a country <laughs> that was doing that kind of thing. But let's try really hard to yeah. put ourselves in the place of people at this time throughout this episode. <laughs> because the woman that we're talking about today was right in the thick of all of this. She is born in Pennsylvania while the Civil War is raging. And she will live to see cars, the telephone, two major world wars. She will travel the world. She will fly in an airplane. <laughs> and she will single-handedly take down one of the largest and most powerful men in the United States. Wow. See, what a time to be alive. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of. So today, we are going to be talking about Ida Tarbell, who was one of the most influential muckraker journalists Aha. of the 20th century. I talked to Stephanie Gorton. Hi, my name is Stephanie Gorton, and I recently published my first book titled Citizen Reporters, S.S. McClure, Ida Tarbell, and the magazine that rewrote America, which is about the, the rise and fall of McClure's magazine, one of the most influential magazines of the Gilded Age. And Citizen Reporters is fantastic. It's a great book, and the format of it is really interesting and unusual. I think we're used to biographies of one person or larger group histories, but I have read very few books that focus on how the relationship between two people really changed the world in the way this book does. So I highly recommend it. Cool. Ida Tarbell is best known as the journalist who took on Standard Oil and John D. Rockefeller. Oh. And whose work led to the breakup of Standard Oil. Oh, wow. And was really incredibly influential in the way that Americans thought about monopolies, about these sort of robber barons of mm. industry, these mega titans who controlled the world, or at least the country. Mm. I'm excited to hear this story because when I teach about the robber barons slash great men who built America in my American history class. For half of the class, we talk about the great things they did and you know their incredible contributions, you know, Andrew Carnegie building all the libraries, things yeah. like that. And then for the second half, we talk about the robber baron perspective. <laughs> and, and then we take a vote. What do you think? Are they more thumbs up or are they more ah. thumbs down? What do you think of these characters? So we do a vote at the beginning ah. and it's usually like, oh, 75% great men. And at the end, it's usually about 75% robber barons. Well, Ida Tarbell would be firmly on the side of robber barons. Mm. And after uh, reading her work, 
I'm not sure many people could come out any other way. <laughs> well, a huge part of her legacy is that her journalism and especially her extremely in-depth expose on John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil led to a big anti-monopoly crusade and the, the breakup of Standard Oil itself. And that would be legacy enough. I mean, that was a huge, huge contribution to American history and the way that we look at the world. Mm-hmm. But she did so much more than that, and she's responsible for some really fundamental shifts in journalism and in what we think journalism is for mm-hmm. and how it should work, that it's astonishing mm. that she is not a household name. Yeah, when you think about trust busting in American history, it's always Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy right. Roosevelt decided monopolies were bad and broke them up. And he was able to do that because Ida Tarbell convinced the country that was true. Cool. But before she did all that... (laughs) She was born in 1857 and died in 1944. And her family lore is that she was born in a log house. They were always very specific that it was a house and not a cabin near Titusville, Pennsylvania. And that was soon to become the commercial center of the American oil region. The first oil well in America was was tapped right near Titusville. Her father made a living building oil tanks. Her mother was an abolitionist and a feminist and really raised the family as readers. Ida was the firstborn and she was a voracious reader with plenty of access to books and magazines. Interestingly, she she doesn't have this stereotypically literary reader's background or childhood. She was fixated on her microscope and she loved biology, science. There's a story that she once took her baby brother and threw him in the creek because she wanted to see if he would float or sink. (laughs) Now... Now, as a mother, I've seen kids do things that, you know, would make your skin crawl and think they're a sociopath and it's just because they don't understand. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's a really good sort of marker for what this little girl's personality is going to grow up into. She is passionately curious. She will stop at nothing to get to the truth and the facts about the world around her. Mm. And she, although she did learn how to do that in less destructive ways as she got older, (laughs) that passion for investigation never leaves her. When she was 14, she actually vowed she would never marry because freedom was more appealing to her than family life. She, you know, I, I, I imagine that she saw her mother's position, somebody who was very intellectually engaged with the world around her, but was really hemmed in to domestic concerns. When Ida Tarbell was 15, her family was hit by a humiliating disaster that stayed with her for the rest of her life. John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil made a sweetheart deal with three railroad companies that increased the price of oil freight for everybody with an exemption for refineries controlled by Standard Oil. And this completely destroyed the small oil industry in which Ida Tarbell's father was working. He lost his job. Mm. They lost everything. And it 
it just really completely destroyed their family and the entire community. Many years later, when she was already a revered reporter, Tarbell heard Rockefeller's son comparing Standard Oil to a prize rose in a speech he gave at Brown University. He said, in order to produce the perfect flower, 50 or more small buds must be lopped off, justifying the flourishing of a great American business. These smaller competitors needed to be lopped off. In terms of, of the lasting effect this had on her and her values, she also wrote, there was born in me a hatred of privilege, privilege of any sort. Elements of a crusading journalist or witness to history, I think, were in her from a very young age because of this family experience. But luckily, Ida Tarbell is growing up when women are allowed to go to college. Yeah. Only a few colleges and only in very specific fields and only with very specific restrictions, but she can go to college. And so she gets a degree from Allegheny College. She realizes quite quickly science is not open to her. Mm. She will not be able to be successful in science as a woman. And so she didn't know what else she wanted to do. This had been the consuming passion of her life. What else should she do? She teaches high school and she starts writing for local magazines editing but this is really she really sees this as like a stopgap to whatever the thing is that she's going to be doing later and then when Ida Tarbell is 33 years old whoa that's the key age for all of the robber barons in America is it it is all of them Carnegie Rockefeller Morgan like 33 is it really yeah and I remember when I first noticed that I thought "Ooh, when I'm 33 (laughs) Nothing's going to happen, and I'll be such a failure compared. (laughs) Well, 33 was the key year for Ida Tarbell as well. Cool. She was sitting in church, and a Scottish pastor who was visiting was giving a guest sermon. He was a really fiery, you know, very fiery Scottish minister. And at the end of the sermon, he pounded the pulpit and yelled, You're dying of respectability. Whoa. And she was shaken by it. She talks about that as a pivotal moment where she thought, I am. I am dying of respectability right now. And uh, it's not how she wanted her life to go. And so she moved to Paris. Whoa. (laughs) On her own. At 33 years old. I love that. You know, friends actually told her when she she decided to move to Paris and, and start writing, remember you're past 30, women don't make new places for themselves after 30. Yeah, you settle into old maidhood and like... Yeah, your your life is over at 33. And she was not having it. She was no longer going to die of respectability. Ah, I love it. And so she picked up and went. She arrives in Paris and she starts writing for American magazines from Paris. And she published an article on the street sweepers of Paris. Huh. And a man named Samuel McClure. Who is an up and coming, charismatic, really visionary magazine editor. He was on the verge of launching his magazine and thought she had made a mundane topic so entertaining 
and so informative and it was exactly the kind of form that he wanted to publish in his magazine. He went off to Paris and knocked on her door. Really? And badgered her to write for his magazine. Whoa, he wasn't in Paris? No. Wow. He left New York, sailed to Paris, <laughs> knocked on her door. That's every writer's dream. begged her to write. <laughs> Except hers, because she likes Paris. She doesn't want to move to New York. Ah. She has chosen where she wants to be. Yeah. But he won't leave her alone. So she finally begrudgingly says, fine, I will write you some stuff from here. But I'm not moving. I'm not leaving Paris. Yeah. But a year later, there was a, such a steep recession, uh, she completely ran out of cash. And McClure is offering a very nice salary and an office and a desk and the brand new that he has just invented for her position of staff writer for a magazine. This wow. is not a thing that existed. Magazine editors just hire freelancers. Yeah. And McClure essentially invents this new idea and says, I would like you to be the writer, our writer, for this magazine. Huh. She says, fine, fine, I'll come to New York until I can afford to move back to Paris. And she was in or near New York City for just about the rest of her life. In her work at the magazine, initially, she was taking assignments from McClure. She wrote a series on Napoleon, series on Lincoln. Both were very trendy topics at that time that other magazines were publishing on as well. She always expected or hoped that she would return to Paris someday. But once she started writing investigative stories that were less focused on history and more focused on the world around her, she really found herself too compelled to leave. She said the magazine itself had become a citizen in its own right. It had tasted blood and it could no longer be content with being merely attractive. I think that's what really kept her there was that she initially felt she was contributing to a form of popular entertainment and that was fine. It's a very respectable way to make a living and to help support her family, especially after this, this Great Recession in 1893. But after the magazine's angle changed and became much more engaged with the society around it, she felt she had a stake in it as somebody who is a voice. And there she stayed. She stumbles into the line of writing that is going to become her legacy and transform American journalism. It was not her idea. It was a colleague of hers who said, you know, the magazine really ought to be covering trusts. These big industrial monopolies are very much in the news. We should write about a trust. Should we write about steel? Should we write about sugar? Let's write about oil. So it was, it was Ray Standard Baker who said, oh, this oil well has just been tapped in California. Looks like it's going to be big. Maybe Miss Tarbell can write about it. S.S. McClure and his business partner, John Phillips, had Tarbell write up a proposal. She does so, and it's for a three-part series. Once she gets going, the information that comes to light starts creating a momentum and giving her such a strong opinion that it ends up coming through very strongly 
with an almost emotional impact by the end of the series, especially if you read it all in one go. What was supposed to be a three-part series will become a 19-part series. Wow. This becomes deep dive investigative journalism to find out what's actually happening behind the scenes of this industry. Mm. What is Standard Oil and John D. Rockefeller doing to America? Now, before we talk about what she found, we sort of have to talk about what is Standard Oil? What was the oil industry? What was John D. Rockefeller doing to the United States? (laughs) So if you are teaching this class, on Great Men Who Made America. <laughs> you have sort of a snappy wrap-up of Standard Oil and John D. Rockefeller that you can <laughs> In a nutshell. share to explain what are we talking about here? For sure. Like all the robber barons in this time period, Rockefeller came from nothing. And mm. through his genius and his ambition, he built himself an empire. He saw that oil was the future because previously people had used kerosene. Oil is cheaper, safer, It's less polluting when you burn it in lamps. And so he decided oil's the future. He bought his first oil company. And then over the course of his life, he bought every other oil company in America. And he was known for being really ruthless. He would buy out all of his competition. If anybody dared to not sell to him, then he just stomps them into the ground and they go out of business and they're bankrupt forever. And so eventually he owns everything, every oil business everywhere, controls it all, calls it standard oil, and he's got the ultimate monopoly. Perfect. This brand new industry in 10 years went from kooky, weird, hilarious to the major commodity Mm. in the United States. The first oil well in America, you can still visit it today, but it's just south of Titusville, Pennsylvania. It's in northwestern Pennsylvania. Petroleum would occasionally seep up in certain creeks in that region of Pennsylvania and be gathered up. And it was used sometimes as a source of fuel, but also as a quasi-medication. The Native Americans of the regions used it to, to rub on muscle aches as an ointment. The first producer of oil sent out this man, Edwin Drake, to go and speculate and see if he could turn this into a business. The local people called him crazy, and he was probably pretty close to the end of his rope when he actually, his drill reached oil. And he had this kind of ramshackle derrick built over it, but he was able to gather upwards of 40 barrels of oil uh, very, very rapidly. Once people figured out how to refine it, Uh, Refining turned into a business that really any speculator could come out and have a try. You built yourself an elementary still and started refining oil, and it turned into a source of fuel that you could sell very rapidly. There were no oil wells in Texas yet. There was nothing in the Middle East. There was nothing in Russia, though those were, were kind of burgeoning. Northwestern Pennsylvania, the strip of land in the Allegheny Valley, was really where it was at. Today, it's completely vanished. But as John D. Rockefeller takes over all of it, putting Ida Tarbell's entire family mm-hmm. out of work and a home, the country starts to grow a little uneasy. 
cartoons that featured Standard Oil in the newspapers often portrayed it as a as a giant octopus or as a snake wrapped around the U.S. Capitol building to represent its its stranglehold on a major American business. So, Ida Tarbell takes this assignment and says, you know what, I'm going to tell the real story of what's actually happening here. And in an era of yellow journalism, where it's all about the headlines, everybody who's seen Newsies knows uh-huh. that, you you know, any headline with the word nude in it is going to sell more. Or Just like today, that, it's clickbait. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And newspapers are just sensationalizing or blatantly making up news yeah. to try to win these circulation wars. The idea that a journalist should check to make sure what their source told them is true <laughs> is not a thing. Yeah. Even in the major U.S. newspapers. And Ida Tarbell is really the first person who says, I think when we report something, it should be true. <laughs> and that's something that was pretty unique to the Tarbell method. There was, there was really no expectation that a reporter would verify something an interviewee had told him something she did as a matter of course. She also was extremely strict about not accepting any kind of gift or any kind of exchange with her sources. When she was interviewing Rockefeller's chief PR guy, she wouldn't even accept a cup of milk when he would offer it to her when she was visibly thirsty in the course of their interviews. Her steadiness and her strictness, these value-driven rules she set for herself were completely original to her. That was not something that was in the air at that time. We marvel today at someone like Robert Caro or like John McPhee, who synthesizes a staggering amount of raw material into doing justice to a topic. And to me, she was really a pioneer in that form. So this really unusual and unusually supportive partnership between McClure and Ida Tarbell allows her to do that. He is encouraging her to do these long, really strange investigations into things that might not be published for months and months and months Hmm. because he recognizes the value of what she's doing. That Tarbell-McClure partnership was so rich and close, also fraught at various periods. Their level of inspiration that they gave each other, but also a kind of unhealthy exploitative dynamic that developed McClure's reliance on her. They were such an odd couple, but they really complemented each other. And I think that comes through in her memoirs so clearly. It was that she'd never really met somebody like this before. And their creative collaboration ended up being extremely fulfilling to her and and kind of giving her a sense of belonging where no other opportunity had done before. I think we still see those relationships around us today, especially when people are doing work that's supposed to be driven by passion, whether it's writing or activism. I think there's this myth that when everybody is, is doing what they do out of love or out of a sense of vocation, then a certain level of dysfunction is, is accepted. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. 
Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEAM activities and more. It's designed for kids, but honestly, I think it's fun for adults. I have had many moments of awe based on these subscription box for children. <laughs> plus, Girls Can Crate is a lifesaver for anyone trying to homeschool, hybrid school, or just entertain their kids. They have mini crates and digital subscriptions too. Check them out now at girlscancrate.com. And don't forget to use the code HERNAME, all one word, to get 20% off your first crate on any subscription. Girlscancrate, C-R-A-T-E dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The number one question that comes up about this work that Ida Tarbell did is, was this investigation driven by a personal vendetta Mm -hmm. against John D. Rockefeller for destroying her father and her family? She wasn't the first journalist to take on Standard Oil, but she did go into the greatest depth. And she found sources that nobody else had, whether it was a teenage clerk who had helped dispose of some questionable papers, or Rockefeller's brother, Frank, who was kind of a bitter guy. They even discovered uh, Rockefeller's father, who was this kind of quack living under an assumed name. The level of investigation was really stunning. The series that eventually comes out of this becomes a landmark piece of U.S. journalism that spurs this entire movement of muckraking that we think about of investigative journalism. Yeah, Yeah. of journalists who understand that their job is to go find the story, not to just wait until the story is presented to them and to go and figure out what's going on, sometimes by literally inserting themselves into the workplace, right? Yeah. You know, go work in the sausage factory and then write about what it's like. Yeah. Check yourself into a mental institution. And then all (laughs) of these people are following in the legacy of Ida Tarbell, who was the first one to say, hey, wait, maybe we should go look. Ah. I can't imagine a bigger impact on the country than this shift, right? The idea that a journalist's job is to be accountable to the people for the truth instead of accountable to their boss for sales. Mm. And again, a lot of those lines have gotten a lot messier. Right. And we're seeing a lot of lines blurring between opinion and news and fact and uh, alternative fact. Yeah. Maybe they're... Those lines are never clear. Maybe they never have been. Maybe we, like, operate under the delusion sometimes that the difference is clear. But, you know, even Ida Tarbell, she would have had her own biases. So, yes, exactly. And I I think that's one of the most important takeaways of this story, too, is we have this idea that journalism's job is to be objective. Mm -hmm. And we have this idea that that is possible. Yeah. That it is possible for a person to be objective. Right, to report the facts. The facts, right. Mm-hmm. And that we have assigned the position of neutrality to very specific demographics, right? There are people who are presumed to be 
neutral. Mm. If you are discussing matters of race, white people are neutral and people of color are biased in that discussion. And we fall into those patterns often yeah. of things that don't affect you, you can be neutral about, mm -hmm. which is nonsense. The idea that anybody can be neutral is nonsense, right? We're all standing on our point of the Rubik's Cube sure. thinking we see the whole thing. Yeah. So nobody can be neutral then. There is no neutral. Mm-hmm. There are facts, right? Yeah. There are things that are just factually true, and it's important that those be touchstones. Uh-huh. But the way different people are looking at any given situation is always going to be framed yeah. from their experience, from the way they have walked through the world. Yeah. And pretending to a neutrality that doesn't exist can be just as dangerous as being openly biased, yeah. right? If you think you don't have a bias, you're going to be dangerous <laughs> to mm -hmm. the people who are not visible from your point of view. And so that's why I, I find it really fascinating that so much of the focus on criticism of Ida Tarbell lands in two things. It lands in the fact that she's a woman, mm. obviously, right? Women aren't supposed to be doing journalism. They might write a cute little column. Yeah. Or, you know, they do the fashion column. Mm -hmm. But women aren't supposed to be interrogating the ethics of Standard Oil yeah. in print. She's way out of her lane right. here. And it is a problem for her entire career. This, you know, the ideas of who is and is not allowed to do this work. And it's Samuel McClure enabling her to do this work. Right? Mm -hmm. She has a salary and she has an outlet to write for. She doesn't have to write the stories that people will buy from her. Yeah. He's also benefiting wildly because McClure's magazine is, is becoming one of the best-selling magazines in the country because of her work. So, yeah. So, you know, she's a woman. She shouldn't be doing this. But the other criticism that's constantly raised is this is a personal vendetta. She only did this because of what he did to her family. Oh, and so and therefore none of it. Therefore, is... none of it matters. Yeah. Or it was biased or it was unfair. Yeah. Her notes for this article in the series are wild. She just has this animus against him. And you can see how her editor guided her and, and restrained some of that. And then it becomes this uniquely powerful work in American investigative journalism. And it just galvanized a uh, movement and it fueled this wave of distrust of monopolies like Standard Oil. So while her personal perspective on it was clearly very strongly influenced by her own family's experience, the facts that she shared, the stories that she wrote, the things that she discovered are factually true. They are what happened. And just because she was probably happy that she <laughs> found these things and could make him look bad, it doesn't make those stories any less true. This is what he was doing. Mm. This is the impact that he was having on the nation. Just as an example, here's one of my favorite quotes from Ida Tarbell's profile of John D. Rockefeller and Sandra Doyle. There is no gaming table in the world where loaded dice are tolerated. No athletic field where men must not start fair. Yet Mr. Rockefeller has systematically played with loaded dice, 
and it is doubtful if there has ever been a time since 1872 when he has run a race with a competitor and started fair. <laughs> wow. But can anyone write a profile of someone they hate that is positive? No, I, pr I think probably not. I guess what I think is, because I think neutrality is made up, there's no neutral. Yeah. Right? And I've seen the damage that comes when we think like a balanced portrayal means you have to land in the middle. No, a balanced portrayal oh, yeah. means you have to tell the truth, <laughs> mm. right? Like find the closest point to the truth. And maybe the truth is this is a despicable human being. Yeah. The middle is not the truth most of the time. Yeah. Sometimes it is, and there's always gray. But pretending that you have to present both sides of any argument when 900 people saw this and one person saw that. Yeah. That's don't don't present both sides of that argument, uh -huh. right? Yeah. So I'm I'm less concerned with objectivity in this series. It doesn't matter to me if she was telling the story of what he did to families because he did it to her family. He still did it to families and mm -hmm. that story matters. That's part of the shift that women's studies is really trying to critique in sciences, social sciences, that the goal of objectivity is wonderful and noble. But when you pretend that you have achieved it, you are ignoring really important facts. And an outside observer mm -hmm. is not always the best judge. Mm. That people on the inside have as many valuable insights to offer about anything yeah. as people on the outside. Yeah. The fact that she's inside the story isn't a disqualification, in my opinion, it's a qualification yeah. for being able to speak honestly about what was the impact yeah. on families like hers, on businesses like her dad's. Mm. So when anyone is telling a story, I mean, in a podcast <laughs> or in a expose, you have like a bag of facts. Yeah. You have to choose which ones you hang your narrative on. Right. And so she's choosing particular horrendous facts, hangs right. her narrative on that. Somebody could pick out things that are also all true, but then suddenly he becomes a great hero. Like, there's all the families he destroyed with Standard Oil, but then there's the maternity hospitals that he built for right. women who had nothing and were totally screwed over by society. So you could pick out those facts and suddenly yeah. like, wow, this guy, yeah. greatest guy ever. <laughs> and, every, and they did, right? That yeah. was the narrative that was being told. Right. That's why to me, it, like, she was one person finally telling the other side of the story. Mm. It doesn't matter to me if what her motivation was to do that as long as the actual reporting was ethical. And, yeah. and it absolutely is. I mean, she would not engage mm. in these kinds of like spurious allegations. These weren't salacious tales of the evil. John Rockefeller, they were factual narratives of the harm that mm. his company was causing. And a lot of that is right. She had great editors at McClure that were like, whoa, 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 no, and pulling her back. And so again, this partnership huh. of Samuel McClure and Ida Tarbell, her doing this just relentless investigation and finding all of these horrible things that nobody understood was happening mm -hmm. and him helping her winnow out what goes in the article. Interesting. It's remarkable. I mean, I really, I really urge everybody to go and read this series that she wrote. It's really astounding mm. journalism. 
And Did you hate John Rockefeller by the time you'd read it? I already hated John Rockefeller, oh, yeah. but now I hate him more. <laughs> you know, even from hindsight, knowing a lot about this time period and, and having rabbit holed this subject myself a lot earlier in my life, I didn't understand how intentional oh, yeah. so much of his destruction yeah, of pretty everything that stood in his way was. Oh, yeah. So many, like, it's dirty business. Yeah. Definitely, like... Yeah, it wasn't, you know, he was not a noble businessman. No. It's he's a he's a bad person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think Rockefeller's reactions really tell you whether this got under his skin in a way that he recognized the truth of it. He refused to publicly react to the series or to Tarbell. He even once claimed that he never read the series, though his wife's traveling companion completely blew his cover in her memoirs, where she talked about how he had her read it aloud to him. (laughs) His lack of public response tells us a lot about how much this got under his skin. But the other really strong evidence of Rockefeller understanding how effective this series was, was the really sudden upswing in the Rockefeller Foundation's charitable work. (laughs) That a lot of those wonderful things that you said, schools, the- Maternity hospitals, actually so much for women. Like he focused in on healthcare for women. So that's amazing. (laughs) That's probably because Tarbell's work especially is activating women who are furious about the kinds of harm that Rockefeller is doing to the world. And so maybe that's his damage maybe. control, right? Yeah. We have to pacify the mothers. <laughs> so the breakup of Standard Oil mm-hmm. is Ida Tarbell's accomplishment. Mm. We can say that explicitly. Like, she did this. And that alone is enough to make her worthy of remembering. But I think this shift in journalism, this idea of what journalism is for, mm. of what reporters should do... She really shifted a whole industry, but the astonishing volume of her work, not just on Standard Oil, her investigative journalism was responsible for so much important uncovering of things about the United States at this time of massive upheaval and where there's so much changing. And it's alarming when these things align. Sometimes I think you and I have experienced that in this podcast, that we we choose subjects months and months in advance. And then things seem to kind of just align suddenly with things in the news. But I think especially this story, there are so many parallels, right, to Mm -hmm. to the what the United States is going through right now. And you and I have talked about this, that, you know, the people who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But the people who do learn from history are doomed to stand on the side screaming, what are you doing? Why are you doing this again? (laughs) No, we already did this. (laughs) And I always find myself wishing that I could use all those parallels to identify exactly what we should do, what will work. Mm. Here's the path. Mm -hmm. And the the unfortunate fact is that it's it doesn't usually work that way. No. Mostly what we have are really good examples of what not to do. (laughs) Don't do that and don't do that when we have all these parallels, the best we can sometimes do is to try to fail a different way this time. (laughs) But I think there are so many lessons from Ida Tarbell's work about the importance of journalism that really aims to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. But then also be open about the inherent bias that has to be there. 
You yeah. can be a truth seeker, but then also say, I'm looking from my square on the Rubik's Cube. Here's what I see. Here we are in a world where anybody can step up to the platform and say their piece. But yeah. whether we listen or not depends on whether we want to hear what they have to say. Yeah. One of the assignments I give my students is to do a conscious evaluation of what media are you consuming mm -hmm. and how many of the people making that media look like you. Mm. I make mm -hmm. myself do it again every year and I'm always startled that even when I am consciously trying, mm -hmm. it's so easy to slide back in to just seeing the one side of the cube, you know, sure. you have to consciously keep redeciding, yeah. looking at what am I reading, what am I listening to, who's missing, mm -hmm. and then go find those things. See, but it's then hard. there it is, there it is, everybody, you have to choose which stories you're choosing, which facts are going yeah. to go into your narrative. Yeah. You and I have both had that pain of, you know, our text messages flying back and forth. I've got my rough cut of the episode. It is two and a half hours long. Yep. <laughs> choosing what stays in is hard. Mm -hmm. And the more aware you become of it, the more honest you can be with yourself about how you're curating your world. Yeah. It's better to choose consciously than yeah. unconsciously, to not even be aware that you're choosing. She gave a commencement speech at Allegheny College at her alma mater in 1913, where she really encouraged the people listening to take visionary leaps of faith, really, as she had. She said, the greatest service of the imagination to the average girl is saving her from an imitative life. Imagination is the only key to the future. Without it, none exists. And with it, all things are possible. Huge thanks to Stephanie Gorton. On our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com, you can find links to the book, as well as photographs, resources, and more. And if you're interested in work that's carrying on the legacy of Ida Tarbell, I want to recommend the podcast Drilled from Amy Westervelt and Critical Frequency. It's very much a modern continuation of the vital work that Tarbell was doing and an important and mind-blowing piece of journalism. If you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month and help us create more episodes, as well as get all kinds of great thank you gifts like our trading cards, cross-stitch patterns, and more. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Music featured in this episode was provided by Andy Reiner and John Souza, Esther Abrami, Ease Jammy Jams, Dana Boulay, and Jeff Kuno. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. <laughs>